Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Upon them in great grace, in great unity, great generosity, great joy, a lot of great things going on. Uh, let's, be, let's read here in verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to them was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, that's, that's quite a, a move of the Holy Spirit going on in the early church. By this time, there may be 20,000 believers uh, about Jerusalem in, in the area. And so it's a, quite an exciting time. And in verse 36, we said a man named Joseph, a Levite of Syrian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now Barnabas is uh, a, he's a great leader in the New Testament, and you'll see him throughout the New Testament being named. He worked and traveled with Paul on missionary journeys. He was highly esteemed in the early church. And... Uh, now we come to a word, but, in chapter 5, verse 1. Okay, here's our conjunction. There's a bit of a contrast here. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. It's a bit different word. Um, Barnabas had an agra, which was an agricultural piece of land, farming land. And, and this is a little bit different word. It was a piece of a property. Uh, sold this piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself and his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what, what's going on here, and I know you know this, what's going on in this chapter, is they were secretly keeping back a part of the sale of this piece of property while professing that they were devoting it all to God. They wanted the appearance of having given all. So they were singing, you know, I surrender all, except this money right here that I got in my back pocket. Uh, they wanted to appear spiritual. You see, uh, Barnabas was, was uh, highly esteemed, and you know, there is a covetousness that can come to be recognized, and uh, perhaps this is what was going on. And so like the Pharisees before them, perhaps they wanted the praise of men also. This is called the sin of hypocrisy. This is the first sin, really, that we see exposed in the church. Not murder, not immorality, but hypocrisy, creating a deceptive, perception of spiritual character, they were acting, pretending 
Now, I know that that's never happened in this church, pretending to be spiritual. I, I grew up in the charismatic renewal, so I saw lots of oh, pretending. It happens, doesn't it? Jesus brought this warning in advance to Peter and the disciples when he said this in Luke chapter 12. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That hypocrisy was a dangerous leaven, and it certainly didn't belong in the church. And so uh, while Jesus was showing mercy to other sinners, you know, the immoral woman and some others, uh, he rebuked hypocrisy viciously with the Pharisees. So I, I think you get a, a, a kind of a clue how Jesus feels about hypocrisy. In verse 3, it says this, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Here we see Satan filled his heart. But I want you to see in verse 4, uh, Peter goes on and says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? See, this, this isn't Satan's fault. Satan took advantage of what Ananias had conceived in his heart. He made a place for the devil. And so Satan was able, had access to him because he filled his mind, he filled his heart uh, with what he opened the door to. And they lied. Not unto men but they lied to God and it wasn't a spur of the moment lie it was a premeditated lie a planned deception they lied to God Almighty because the offering was to God they wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it so to gain the reputation they told a lie their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. Verse 5, isn't this, isn't this wonderful after all that wonderful singing we just sang, you know, about God <laughs> surrounding us? And Verse 5 says, when he heard these words, Ananias fell dead and breathed his last. Boom! Just like that. Uh... He fell dead, and great fear came over all who heard it. Now, that'd be one kind of service to be in. This is no little battle with fear. They went from joy to terror. <laughs> in that, it got, it just, I would say it changed the atmosphere of the meeting. This was the kind of fear that hits you right in the gut. It awakens you to a supernatural power beyond your control. That the supernatural discernment would be given to the apostles that would uncover hidden sin and would result in such severe and immediate judgment. It'd be hard to just, just to consider the emotion of that moment. You know, it got real quiet in the service, but they were trembling. I would, I, this is my, this is how I see this. I just imagine being a church member that day. The shock, 
the sense of vulnerability. You know, these things happened in the days of Moses, you know, uh, where uh, Nadab and Abihu, you know, they offered strange fire. These were Aaron's sons. They, they, they offered strange fire in the tabernacle and instantly were executed by God. And furthermore, God spoke to Aaron and said, don't you weep over your sons or you will misrepresent my holiness. Isn't this a fun service? <laughs> or the days of Elijah. Remember, he, was, he would call down fire upon 50 that were coming after him uh, to take him to the king. And uh, then another 50 came and he called down fire on them. And another 50 came and the commander of that 50 says, just, just, just a minute, just a minute. <laughs> Something to be feared. We see it with Uzzah. Remember Uzzah when he, the, the Ark of the Covenant was on the cart and it was, now oxen stumbled and he didn't want that Ark, you know, to fall in the mud there and so he steadied it with his hand. Bam! Executed instantly. Now, these things happened in those days and in the imagination of maybe if I were sitting there, I would be thinking, is this the way it's going to be, being a follower of Jesus? No mercy, just judgment. I mean, what? How? No mercy. Is God in a bad mood today? You know, what all of a sudden has this happened in our midst? Am I next? I'm not perfect. And what's with Peter. He, he, he gave no opportunity for the man to repent. And he himself denied the Lord three times. What's going on here? I mean, you know, that's, that's how I'd feel if I were one of the members of the church there. Look in verse 6. Verse 6 says, uh, The young men got up and covered him up, and carrying him out, they buried him. Now, put yourself in place of these young men <laughs> given this task of wrapping up this dead body and carrying him out to bury him now I think they were probably freaking out I would be <laughs> I'd be a little nervous <laughs> you know actually if I were one of those guys you know you know I'd be pretty nervous and I'd I'd say guys you know I you know, I think maybe I could have done something like this myself. And you know, I would start coming clean right there. I'd start confessing my sins. You know, I, I've just, un, you know, I may have lied like this at one time. Matter of fact, I have lied. I am a liar. I'm a liar. I'm a liar. I'm a liar. You know, I, because they, he did, I wouldn't want to be, you know, when they throw him in the grave, I didn't want to, whoop, just God take me all in there with him, you know. Can you imagine running into somebody? As they're taking him to the graveyard. Hey, what do you, what you got there? Hey, you don't want to know. <laughs> who, who is that? Oh, that's Ananias. Oh, Ananias, the, the blacksmith? What? Yeah, yeah well, well, what happened? Well, uh, God killed him. Why did God kill him? He lied. 
you know, I, you know, they after they bury that guy, they might reconsider going back for Sunday night service. You know, <laughs> or, or or maybe you know just going to a different church. Except there was only one church in town, and that was the the, the first church of Jerusalem. So uh, <clears throat> look look at verse seven. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. Now that tells me, you know, that they had long services. And his wife came in three hours later. That tells me they rode different donkeys to church. Not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her and said, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test. Behold, or look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. I mean, here's these guys. They're just getting back. And there's Peter saying, look! Ah!" (laughs) And And they will carry you out as well. And so these guys, okay, all right, we know the routine, you know, and they, and they, and they wrap her up and they're taking her out. And it's, it's not a good day going on here. Peter seems to have zero mercy going on here. I mean, this action seems so unwarranted. Didn't even give Ananias the opportunity to repent. And, so, and he gave her a little bit of opportunity to abandon the lie, but... Uh, I thought that, you know, that this was maybe a, a pretty strange method of church growth because, <laughs> because it says they, the believers continued to, to multiply as a result of this. Great fear came on the church and the church continued to multiply. Killing people at the offering just might work, you know. <laughs> so I, aren't you glad we've already taken the offering this morning? <laughs> this is an amazing event going on here. So, uh, you know, imagine trying to invite somebody to your services after that. Yeah, why don't you come? We're, we're celebrating the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ananias and Sapphira back yet? <laughs> no, who's preaching? <clears throat> well, Peter. <laughs> I think I'll pass. <laughs> I'm coming to church this Sunday. All right, this story, I, I have to have to lighten up a little bit, but this story is actually so shocking and it challenges our theology because it's, it's, you know, we have a difficulty of accepting the idea that God would do such a thing in his own house. It was so severe, so immediate, and, and I've been, as I'm studying this, you know, there are different teachings with some different views on this story. You know, some go as far as to say, well, they, they just had natural heart attack when they just got so exposed that they just had a heart attack and dropped dead. Yeah. And Sapphira too, yeah. Like, yeah, the, we, we try to change up God to, be a, to fit our comfort levels a little better. And uh, there's a lot of teaching right now on this particular uh, subject because there's a lot of grace teaching going around and one of the teachings says that Ananias and Sapphira weren't believers at all that they were tares among the wheat that this was an attack of Satan from within 
and that this action was God's protecting hand saving the church from the enemies within. And part of this argument is seen in verse 13, which we haven't read all the way through here. Let me, let me finish reading this. Uh, in verse 10, Sapphira fell at his feet, breathed her last. The young men came in, found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church. This is the first mention of church in, 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 the, in the book of Acts. And, and over all who heard these things, and at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them, okay? However, the people held them in high esteem, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Now, this particular argument uh, about them not being believers, uh, verse 13 is used where it says none of the rest, that is none of the rest of the imposters, none of the rest of the outsiders, none of the rest of those that were being used by the devil to bring trouble to the church uh, dared to be a part of those meetings. Uh, so no more terrors joined the church. Well, another reason why this is something of a weak argument is if God was striking down Ananias and Sapphira to protect the church, it would really be a cause for great comfort and rejoicing, not great fear. Okay? Uh, but it was great fear that came upon the whole church. <clears throat> and uh, also, there's nothing in the Scripture that indicates that they were not believers. Um, they were numbered among those who believed. They did have property to sell and to give. And divine discipline is for sons, not unbelievers, with nothing to lose. But the result was good, which was great fear. Healthy fear had come upon the church. And this teaching, this other teaching about this, says that God would never judge those in Christ because Jesus took our judgment on the cross that's the argument which is not correct Romans chapter 1 verse 8 verse 1 says there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus that means the final judgment no damnation uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus the New Testament plainly teaches and shows us many locations that God does judge his people he brings discipline and correction to his sons and commands the church authority to bring discipline as well. Let me give you some verses for this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. He wants to bring us to maturity, even as you as a parent will discipline your children to bring them to a place of maturity. First Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 17, And if you call him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, you believers conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. In Revelation, we see the seven, chapter, the seven letters to the church. They are filled with corrections and warnings of judgment from Jesus himself. 
Now let me read a few more verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 says this, and we quote this at our communion times. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, you see, we see there's judgment upon his body. When we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we'll not be condemned along with the world. Now, let me explain this to you. In 1 Corinthians, we see that Paul delivered an unrepentant sinner over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved. Okay? So that he, they, he would not be condemned at the final judgment along with the world. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says this, Now these things in the Old Testament took place as examples for us, that we may not desire evil as they did, nor be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. Hebrews chapter 12, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, let me say, <laughs> all right, it's time for me to balance this out here about God's judgments, okay? God is a perfect judge, perfect, absolutely perfect in his judgments. He can never be wrong. And he is a very wise and loving judge. Now, one form of judgment on the unrighteous is, is that God turns men over to their own choices. And we see this. Let me, let me read a portion of that to you. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed. Now, this is a present-day wrath. There is an apocalyptic wrath yet to come. But there is a wrath of God that's loosed in the earth right now. It's a present judgment revealed, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And as you read the rest of chapter 1, you see a phrase repeated three times, therefore, because of their choices to worship the creation rather than the creator, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And then we see again in verse 26 that God gave them over to degrading passions. And then we see again in verse 28 when they did not fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. The spirit of stupid came upon them and their deductions and the way they think. This was the present day judgment is what we see today. See? 
And so there is a judgment that's happening for the unbeliever in the world today. Now, uh, in the garden, you know, what they were doing is they're pushing, when we, we push away God, who is the source of life, men are choosing death and its consequences. And so that is one form of judgment that is, comes around the back door. For example, like uh, in the garden, God told Adam, in the day that you eat from the forbidden tree, you will certainly die. He didn't say, I will certainly kill you. He said, you will certainly die because of the choice of death that you're making. You choose life or choose death. Uh, and, but also in the garden, God also brought punitive judgment against them himself by his hand. When he said, you're going to have pain in childbirth, I'm cursing the ground, I'm driving you out of the garden, and you're physically going to die and return to just to dust. So every sin requires a punishment, or he would not be a just God. Every sin produces death, even for the believer. Important point about the danger of sin. And so every sin requires a punishment. I thank God Jesus took mine. God does not excuse any sin whatsoever. And now in the case of the believer, now here's a judgment I want to show you in the Scripture that just may apply to Ananias and Sapphira. I'm laying these out for you because I want to tell you something. I don't have all the answers about <laughs> Acts chapter 5. But God stuck this in here. You know, this really shows the honesty of the Scriptures. <laughs> you know, God shows history warts and all. He shows the church warts and all. He shows the men in the Old Testament warts and all. Okay? That's the honesty of, of, the, of our book, the Bible. Okay? And so... Uh, I don't have all the answers on this, but I want to present some thoughts to you about the character and the nature of God. Now, in the case of a believer, okay, who is unrepentant to the point that they cannot or will not yield to God, they could be on their road to eternal damnation. And God in His mercy can cut off their earthly life to save them in the day of the Lord. I would want that. <laughs> we see this when Paul said, in the name of our Lord Jesus, because there was an immoral man in, in Corinth and in the midst of the church, and he was shocked that the church was tolerating such sin, and he was unrepentant in his sin. And so Paul, in his authority, given from the head of the church, said, when you are assembled, I will be with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus. And I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So that's where I get this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, we are disciplined for a reason. We're disciplined for our good. He's helping us. We're disciplined that we may not be condemned along with the world. So we cannot despise the discipline or the correction of the Lord upon our lives because the poison of sin could ultimately carry you 
into condemnation with the rest of the world. That's a, that's a sober thought. So that brings up the question, well, were, were Ananias saved? Are we going to see him in heaven? Did they lose their salvation over this sin? Or was this the mercy of God to save them from themselves? They didn't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Death is just a means to be transported from this life to the next. It doesn't actually invalidate salvation when you die. Later on in Acts chapter 13, we see Paul addressing uh, Elemis the magician who was interrupting his witnessing to the proconsul, and he called him a son of the devil. And he was struck blind by the hand of the Lord. Now here, in, in Acts chapter 5, Satan had access to Ananias' mind, but he didn't call him a son of the devil. <laughs> Matter of fact, even Peter, uh, Satan had access to his mind at one point when Jesus said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> okay? But he became a leader in the church. So, our Ananias and Sapphira saved. I, I, we'll see, but I do know this. The early church was being saved from the potentially damaging internal force of deception and hypocrisy. It was a dangerous leaven. It was the poison of the Pharisees showing up in an immature, in a new church situation. And the hand of the Lord, there's some things God's not going to tolerate. He wasn't going to tolerate this. You ever had a you ever walk in your house and there's a smell in the house and you start looking around for that smell and you finally you get to the pantry and you got a bag of potatoes in there and there's one bad stinking rotten potato in there and it's stinking up the whole house and you take it with all of your wrath <laughs> and you preserve the rest of your potatoes and uh, I have to look at this like that now, I've, I've said all that for this reason. Uh, that is quite a story, you know, and we don't have all the answers to that. Uh, but I do want to say this. Beware of the practice of making God in an image that we desire. It was uh, some years back, I was, I was in church, showed up at church one morning and and it was a very excited believer, and she said, uh, man, God is good all the time. And I said, yeah, God is good. Uh, but I said, here, what about this verse? I said, behold the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Well, she didn't want to hear that. She, she refused. To, she said, well, even in his severity, God is kind and good to me. You know, I thought she didn't want to accept all the characteristics of God. Only the ones she agreed with. We want a God we can manage in our understanding, a God who makes sense according to our standards. We want an American God. We want a Republican God. We want a prosperity. We want a non-smoking Republican God. 
It's what we want. Now, the Scripture tells us in Hebrews that God is a consuming fire. This does not fit well with God is my boyfriend, or he's the good old boy, or he's the man upstairs. You see, we want to shape God in an image that is comfortable for us, and left to our carnal thinking, we'll tend to uh, attribute to God our values and reduce him to our limited concepts of holiness and justice and sin and grace. We begin to shape and make God in our image. We make a lesser God that's a little easier to walk with. And this diminishes the fear of God in our lives. And we're to have the fear of God in our lives. So and let's, let's just pick a couple of these. The holiness of God, for example. That is alien to us. Because we are creatures and He is uncreated. We are earthly. He is unearthly. This God I'm talking about in the New Testament is the same God as the Old Testament. He hasn't changed. He's the same God that executed <laughs> Nadab and Abihu. He's, you know, when Joshua, when they were marching, it, there's such a parallel here between Joshua uh, coming into the promised land in the early church and things are going real well for Joshua and, and the crew they they uh, conquered Jericho and then bam everything comes to a stop when Achan there was sin in the camp and the same thing when you look at the book of Acts everything's going real well for about four chapters Woo-hoo! and then we hit chapter five boom all progress stops because there was sin in the camp Something God was going to put his hand up against. He's the same God. He hadn't changed. He's only changed the way he relates to those of us in Christ if we remain in his kindness and we remain in faith. We get all the wonderful, gracious, loving attributes of God that we rejoice about when we remain in his kindness. But if I begin to go down the road of sin and deception, I'm endangering myself. And I might endanger myself to the point where God must bring discipline into my life. You know, there is church discipline that we don't really function in much today. And we allow certain things to go on. You know, there was one very large church. You would know if I called this church, there was a poll done in, in this church, and it turned out that a significant portion of the church was living in immorality, in fornication, living together. This was in a major, one of the largest churches in America at one point. Well, we tolerate so much. No, why? Well, uh, we do take the grace of God for granted, and we assume upon God, and we can often assume upon His grace. So let me, let me, let me share a, a line from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, and perhaps you may remember this line. Uh, <clears throat> when the beaver was talking to Susan, he reveals to her that Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that was his type of Christ. He's not a safe God. But he has put us in a safe place in Christ. But he hasn't lost any of his power, his wrath. He's still a God of wrath. I know, isn't this a fun Sunday morning message? He is sovereign and he does what he wills for his own purpose. But he has put us in a safe place in Christ. And with that holiness issue settled, we enjoy all the other divine attributes of God. Now, that's his holiness. Now, let's look at his justice just real quickly. Uh, when, we, when we think about his justice, our sense of justice, you know, we, we want to, here's what happens is we put God on a man's foundation. We, we can only relate to him according, you know, we live in a culture and we live in, in a, 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 a natural world and we see through this filter. And so we see through a glass darkly. We don't know the fullness of God's holiness. We can't see. We cannot get our minds around it. Matter of fact, we can't get our minds around his goodness. God said, you know, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you, he said to Moses. He says, but I can't let you see my face. Or it'll kill you. God's so good it'll kill you. We can't handle it in our present state. And so we're trying to view God. We're trying to understand God in this particular state that we live in. And therefore, we tend to put God in human forms. We tend to give him uh, the, the level of how we perceive holiness and how we perceive justice. And we can't get our minds around it. Uh, <laughs> I remember I was, in a, I was in a healing service once and, and God was just doing all kinds of wonderful things. And uh, a lot of healing was taking place. And there was, this, there was this old woman. She was sitting right in this chair, just an older woman. I guess she had come up and I could tell she needed something from the Lord. And I said, well, ma'am, can I pray for you? She said, oh, no, no. She said, don't pray for me. God's got bigger things to worry about like wars and famines and you know I was shocked at her small God <laughs> uh, she saw God like a giant switchboard operator you know that could only handle so many calls at a time and he was only taking the important ones that's putting God on a man's foundation of omniscience when God can hear everybody's prayers simultaneously and answer them all simultaneously he's a big God but yet she had a very small God in her mind see I couldn't do much with that God can't do much with that you know unbelief doesn't uh, help us <laughs> so we have this tendency and and when it comes to the justice of God I've heard this many times uh, that uh, Many blame God for the injustices that they suffer. And they're bitter that God has been unfair to them. How many have ever heard, maybe you've been mad at God. As if God can do something wrong. Our understanding is limited. And so uh, uh, they can become bitter that God's been unfair to them. That we deserve better. R.C. Sproul died a couple of weeks ago, but he says it better than anybody I know. 
He says, uh, it's impossible for anyone, anywhere, anytime to deserve grace. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. As soon as we talk about deserving something, we're no longer talking about grace. We're talking about justice. Only justice can be deserved. God is never obligated to be merciful. We feel he owes us mercy. He doesn't. He never owes anyone grace. He said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It's up to him. Now, suppose ten people sin and sin equally. Suppose God punishes five of them and is merciful to the other five. Is this injustice? No. In this situation, five people get justice and five get mercy. No one gets injustice. God never owes mercy. He is not obligated to treat all people equally. Matter of fact, he's never obligated. We are in his mercy, and that is so something to be so grateful for. It's a gift. Every day is a gift for us. And I cannot take his mercy and his grace for granted. And I've, I've told you the story before, R.C. Sproul's story about his students when they had three papers due. Remember that story? I'll just go over it real quick. He's got, I think, like 100, no, 200 students. Three papers are going to be due the end of September, the end of October, and the end of November. And uh, you don't turn in your paper, you get an F. Well, the September 30th rolled around, and uh, 175 students turned in their paper. 25 of them failed to turn their paper in. They were terrified. And they begged, oh, Professor Sproul, please, please don't, please, we, we didn't make the good transition from high school to college, and, you know, there was a lot going on, and, and he said, all right, I'm going to give you mercy, and uh, I'll accept your papers. Well, October came, the end of October, and 150 papers came in, and 50 came in late. And they strolled in without their papers, and they seemed a little bit unconcerned. Ah, oh, it's okay, Professor. We'll get them to you in a couple days. No sweat. Okay, I'm going to extend mercy one more time to you. Oh, you're wonderful, Professor Sproul. Oh, we love you. You're great. November 30th rolls around. 100 students come with their papers. 100 students did not have their papers with them. No problem. We'll have them in a few days for you. <clears throat> Sproul takes out his black book, his grade book. Johnson, you have your paper? Uh, no, sir, I'll have it in a couple days. F! Muldaney, do you have your paper today? Uh, no, sir. F! The students began to revolt <laughs> with anger. <laughs> and uh, Thompson, you think I'm being unfair? Yeah. Oh, it's justice you want. Well, as I remember, you were late the last time your paper was due. So not only am I going to give you an F for this month, but I'm going to give you the F you so richly deserve from last month. 
John Thompson sat down and everything quieted down. They were taking the grace and the mercy of their professor for granted, and this only after two doses of grace. Two doses. We have been living in the mercies of God. They're new to us every morning. New to us who are believers. But the mercy of God is not infinite. The mercy of God isn't forever. It is to us who are in Christ. But His mercy comes to an end at some point. Right now, we are in a period of time where He has extended His mercy to mankind that they may come into the ark, that they can come into Christ. But one day, that mercy comes to an end and they'll only know the other aspect of God, His wrath, which has been against mankind since the fall. I know this is great fun, but we... All right, enough of that. I want to look at one aspect of this story that is healthy for us and good for us. I mean, why does God stick this in here? I mean, it wakes us up. It wakes us up not to reduce God to something that we can manage, but to realize He's a God (laughs) that is bigger than what I can think. His standards are higher than what I can ever imagine. And this is the God who loves me and has become my helper. This is the God who has surrounded me with His mercy and His grace, and He has made me His own and loves me so much. Just as I love my children so much, I will spank them to keep them from running in the street. I'll scourge them. I'll make them hurt and make them learn and grow up. He wants me to grow up. He doesn't want me dabbling in sin. He doesn't want me dabbling in hypocrisy. He wants me to take seriously the nature of sin and unrighteousness. And here it's stuck in Acts chapter 5 for our instruction and to wake us up a little bit. And so let me just say a word about the fear of the Lord. And let me give you some verses concerning that. When we change the nature of God, we lose the fear of the Lord. When we have an incomplete picture of God, we become ignorant of his holy nature and our own sinfulness. Okay? Now, here's what the Bible says about the fear of the Lord. I love these verses. He, he said this in Second Chronicles. He said, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Job 28, verse 28. He said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 5, you will discern the fear of the Lord and you will discover the knowledge of God. Proverbs 10, verse 27 says, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26, the fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6, by the fear of the Lord one keeps away from evil. That's the one that highlights for me when I have the fear of the Lord I keep away from evil it keeps us from compromise it keeps us from dabbling in things that are poison to our soul and this is what the fear of the Lord will do keep us away from evil Proverbs 19 verse 23 the fear of the Lord leads to life that one may sleep satisfied untouched by evil Proverbs 22, verse 4 says, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, 
and life. And then Proverbs 23, 17 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Now, I may not have done a, a, a perfect job with this. I mean, how can I increase our knowledge of God? This is, you know, I, I might be able to throw out some questions and throw out some thoughts to provoke us in in learning more and gaining more of the knowledge of God. But in our takeaway this morning, let me give you some of the takeaway that we can take away from Acts chapter 5 this morning. First one comes from Susan Otten. And that is, God is watching. <laughs> the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Absolutely nothing is hidden from Him. You can hide things from each other, from man. You can hide things. You can... You can cheat on your taxes. Go right ahead. No, I'm, I'm not recommending that you, you could get. But the eyes of the Lord are upon every little compromise. My thoughts are as loud in heaven as my actions. Your secret sin is known to God and it's open scandal in heaven so God's watching number one number two never take the mercy and the grace of God for granted you know right now we don't have the intensity of power that they had in Acts chapter Four and Acts chapter 5 the, probably the, the glory of God so intense you know when you're in an environment like that an intense presence of God there's an intense working of God that's happening in, in that in revival the children of Israel saw a lot of the glory of God in the wilderness I mean, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. I mean, you know, the Shekinah glory. The groceries were falling out of heaven. You know, uh, not one sick among them. Their cattle wouldn't get sick. Their clothes didn't even wear out in that kind of intense presence of the Lord. But I want to tell you something. Only two got out of the wilderness alive. And you know, an intensity of revival, an intensity of the presence of God, an intensity, you know, if God put His glory, the weight of His glory upon our house today, I'm wondering how many of us would survive. It's not like a hellfire brimstone preacher, Don. I don't want to take away from the mercy of God, the grace of God when I preach a message like this. But we have to take a look, not only to consider the kindness, but consider the severity of God also. Behold both, is what the scripture says. Oh, live in his kindness. Choose life. But when I begin to choose sin, and I begin to choose compromise, I am putting myself in a precarious position outside of the protection and the help, the guidance I can put myself outside. I can make a choice to get out of Christ if I want. Now, that's a controversial statement for many. 
But if I made a decision to get into the kingdom of God, I can make a decision to get out. Okay, we'll move along from that one. Number three, I would encourage everyone in the house to be a noble disciple. That is, don't swallow every teaching here, including the one that comes from this pulpit, but study the scriptures for yourself. Because sometimes it's just really easy to be listening to a preacher saying really nice things, and you go ahead and swallow it without studying it. Study and see. See if it matches up with the whole New Testament. See if it matches up with the teachings of Jesus. See if you see it practiced in the New Testament. And measure it according to our standard, which is the Bible. Okay, we, That's our standard. And number four, live, learn, and live in the fear of the Lord. Psalm 34, 11 says, Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And Psalm 2, verse 11 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that an interesting thought? We're going to worship with reverence and rejoice with trembling. That is, we... We don't take our eyes off of all that God is. We bring ourselves before the God of the universe, the one who's not safe, but very kind and very loving, and we're the recipients. Aren't you glad? And I am so glad Acts chapter 5 is over. Now, we, we can go on to Acts chapter 6. This was a labor. Let's stand up together. <laughs> This will give you something to talk about over lunch, huh? You, you, can, you can note all the things that Bill Otten said that was wrong here this morning, all right? How many followed me this morning in, in what I'm saying? We've got a big God, and He's bigger than what our minds can comprehend. Father, we want to know You. We want to know You. And, it, it, and part of us is almost terrified about that, about who you are and, and, and your greatness and in the greatness of your power. But Lord, we don't know enough and we don't see enough. And we ask that your Holy Spirit continue to reveal to us the things of God. Reveal to us the nature and the character of God. Holy Spirit, you're our teacher. You're the revealer of truth. And we want to depend upon you, depend upon your anointing uh, to, to, to be taught of you. And so for each of us, Lord, we we just yield our minds up to you. And where there is error in our own thinking, we're asking for your correction. Where we need discipline, we ask for your discipline. Where we need correction, we ask for your correction. But we want to know you. Reveal yourself to us and change our lives. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.